0: Hello, my name is Jody Lee and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Uh, the poem I'm going to start the podcast today is called In My Dreams. Uh, it was written by Francisco X. Alarsan, and I found it in his poetry book, Poems to Dream Together, and this was illustrated by Paula Barragane. Francisco was born in California, and he grew up in Guadalajara, Mexico, and he wrote many books of poetry for both adults and children. In uh, 1984, he won the Chicano Literary Prize, and in 1993, the Penn Oakland Josephine Mills Award, and a Fred Cody Lifetime Achievement Award from the Bay Area Book Reviewers Association in 2002. He died in early of 2016. Uh, His poetry books for children include the titles Laughing Tomatoes and other Spring Poems, uh, From the Belly Button of the Moon and other Summer Poems, Angels Ride Bikes and other Fall Poems, and Iguana in the Snow and other Winter Poems. In My Dreams by Francisco X. Alarsan In my dreams, buffaloes roam free once again on the plains, whales become opera singers of the sea. Dolphins are admired by all for their smarts and joy. In my dreams, there is no word for war. All humans and all living beings come together as one big family of the earth. My guest today is Roshni Chakshi, a best-selling author of the YA series The Star-Touched Queen, the YA novel The Gilded Wolves, which was released in 2018, the middle-grade novel Arusha and the End of Time, and its sequel, Arusha and the Song of Death, which was just released. You can find Roshni's website at roshnichakshi.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Roshni.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, I understand you've been are finishing up a book tour for uh, the latest Arusha book. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that experience is like, um, both the highlights and maybe the parts that are a, bit, a little bit more of a challenge.
1: You know, I think with Booktour, there's always this expectation of a lot of glamour, and it is. There's so many beautiful, wonderful, high-flying things about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is, it is, um, it is exhausting, but in the best way possible. You get, for the first time, Or, you know, for the first time in a while to see the people who are actually on the receiving end of this thing that you have worked on for months, you know, in the cold dark of your office with only the cat meowing at you for company. It's a writing is such a solitary thing that the magical thing about tour is that it reminds you um, of the context of your own work. Uh, And as exhausting as it is, it is just as inspiring to keep you going,
0: mm-hmm. and you never get tired of talking about uh, the book. I don't know if it's 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 a, you know it's just uh, enjoyable to just talk about this thing you've created uh, uh, again and again, or if you you feel like you're a little bit on on row. Or do you do you enjoy just talking about it?
1: I I do enjoy talking about it. I, I've been blessed with a healthy dose of narcissism, so <laughs> it's nice to be reminded of what I've actually been doing.
0: <laughs> well, then I'm going to ask you one more time. Uh, for uh, those who've uh, read the uh, first book, The Arashah and The End of Time, which I have and have look, been looking forward to the sequel and, and haven't had a chance to read it, which is me as well, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, Arashah and The Song of Death, uh, what a person would have to look forward to in this new book?
1: Well, the one thing about Arashah and The Song of Death is it really celebrates how, when it comes to the nature of villains and heroes, particularly in Hindu epics, there's a lot of gray area and a lot of nuance. These are not fairy tale archetypes of the person wandering in the wood who meets an old woman who asks for a heel of bread. This isn't that. There is a lot of agency behind why they do the things that they do. They're deeply flawed. And it's something that I wanted to explore in this book, um, about how heroes can be villainous and villains can be quite heroic because that's, that's part of the things about growing up. You know, there's the world is no longer black and white. It gains a lot of shade and nuance and, um, navigating that is, is rough.
0: And other, are you thinking of uh, apart from this book? And I know you don't want to give too much uh, away, uh, but are you thinking even after this book, there are other stories uh, with Aru that uh, that you'd like to tell?
1: Oh, of course! Actually, you know she's got two more books, maybe even three more books. We shall see. And in each of those, I'm really excited about the journeys that she gets to go on, and especially the settings that she gets to engage with. Um, One of my favorite parts about writing Arusha and the Song of Death was that it takes place um, in the Naga Loka, which is the realm of snakes. So you get all these fun underwater, underworld aspects. There's an aquatic airport. There's a sea leviathan that goes to sunken places like Atlantis or Avalon. Um, and there's just things going on in the background. I think one of the really, really exciting things, especially with middle grade fantasy, is that you get to, um, you get to superimpose the mundane upon the fantastical. So you may be entering the other world market, but you still have to go through a version of TSA. Like, like you know? Um, and that, that just, uh, delights me.
0: Now, this is a question I've asked of uh, other writers who've uh, created series uh, with uh, familiar characters. Uh, Is it something that um, you write each book and sort of figure it out as you go along? Do you have a a big plan or just a general outline? Or is it uh, you get to a book and figure, well, I'll figure it out when I get to the next book?
1: Mm, Nothing terrifies me more than a blank page that is truly blank. Um, I have always had a plan for all of my books. Um, at least like in the sense of, I know how a trilogy ends. I know, I've known from the beginning, how are will end, even when I didn't quite know how to start the book. Um, and with each book, uh, one of the things that I like to think about is what is the question that the main character will be asking of themselves and how will it be answered? Um, and by asking those questions, it sort of leads you down this natural road of the sort of events that they will go through. Um, both humorous and serious and just what am I excited to write you know because I feel like with so many writers we know after after you write your first book that is uncontracted it's done with love and no particular amount of urgency other than the feeling of one day having people read your work after that you enter the realm of what it's like to be a contracted author there's a lot of terror associated with that and there's of course the ever-looming deadline And yet, even with that, you know that the process of writing and publishing a book is about a year plus. So you have to be willing to sit with, live with, argue with, love, fall out of love, hate, love back again, that story. So you better really enjoy writing it or at least parts of it. There's got to be some carrot leading me along.
0: Um, now we, when, when I originally sent out the invitation, I asked people what their favorite children's book they'd like to talk about. And, um, you listed three. We're going to actually just be doing two of those, but I did want to talk about, uh, one of the books was the graveyard book by Neil Gaiman, and we're not going to be specifically talking about that today, but I did want to ask you about Neil Gaiman, because I understand that he's been a, a big influence in you and your writing and becoming a writer. And what is it about Neil Gaiman, maybe this particular book or just his writing in general, because he's written, you know, Coraline and American Gods and so many other books uh, that uh, that inspires you, I guess?
1: I think one thing that I really love about his body of work is that it sort of it defies an expectation of genre he writes for every age group um and in all of his work there's this commonality of tone and wryness you know what i mean he talks about he talks about what it means to tell stories about the stories that we tell about ourselves and um and how that informs who we are and there's There's an incredible degree of elusiveness with his work. You know, he never like outright says this is the queen of fairy or something like that. There's just this current of archness that ties together all of his stuff when they are wildly different from the graphic novels of Sandman to his picture books like, uh, you know, Wolves in the Walls and that kind of stuff to his adult work.
0: Hmm. I have to say that uh, the graveyard book has one of my all time favorite opening sentences. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There was a hand in the darkness, and it held a knife.
1: Oh geez, yeah, it's it's awful. And the delightful terrible thing about that sentence is that it invites a dangerous kind of distance. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. It's it's great,
0: mm. and it's so simple too. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Now, the other uh, two books uh, that you, um, that we're going to talk about today are The Iron Ring by Lloyd Alexander and uh, Ty, The Modern Tale* by Holly Black. And I thought I'd start with uh, The Iron King. Um, this was first published in 1997 by Dutton. Uh, and it's a, it's a book I, li- I love, all books by Lloyd Alexander, honestly, is one of my favorites. But for readers who might not be familiar with The Iron Ring, can you talk a little bit about uh, what it's about?
1: Sure. The the Iron Ring is a very traditional hero's quest. Um, There's a young prince. I believe his name is Suddar or Surin. I I can't actually remember anymore. I just remember how much I loved it. Tamar. Wow. Oh, that's the name of his kingdom, isn't it? It's something with an S. And he gambles it away. Uh, And it's about how he loses his kingdom and he has to get it back. He meets, of course, the wise cracking sidekick, the lovely, fierce maiden, and it's a journey of self of how to lose that recklessness. Um, And what I really loved about the Iron Ring is it actually references an episode in the famous Sanskrit epic, the Mabharata, and I don't think most readers are familiar with this. One of the most famous scenes is the eldest Pandava brother loses a game of dice. And in losing this game of dice, he loses his kingdom, and he, his brothers, and their wife, because they all share one. It's a anyway. We'll we'll get into that later. Is um, they're exiled to the forest for fourteen years, and I believe that that was the mythological episode that inspired Lloyd Alexander to have this particular premise for the Iron Ring. So seeing that sort of Easter egg to my own culture and reading for the first time a story that celebrated somebody who could be part of my family um, and a girl who looked like me was so powerful. It was the first time that I had experienced that.
0: Well, as you mentioned, he uses this mythology of India, and this is something he does in a lot of his books where he takes an existing mythology uh, aspects and characters and stories, and he weaves it into – he doesn't just retell the myths. he, He takes them and tells an original story. Uh, out of it, and can talk a little bit about how he uses you know those things rather than just retelling the story but actually creating his own um story out of all those little bits and pieces that he weaves together
1: so I will always love the iron ring, you know it 's one of those books of childhood that it just it did so many things for me, but that particular cherry picking, I guess, of a culture is not something I think that would fly in publishing these days. And I believe that that's for the best, because while he does take these elements of mythos, there are a lot of things that, you know, when I was rereading it, that he doesn't tackle or that he does with a clumsy hand, um, or even that he does simply because he likes the atmosphere, the elegance and essentially the exoticism of that setting. And yet. he's not doing anything different from any other storyteller. He's certainly not doing anything different from what I'm doing, which is to find the things that interest us and steal it. Um, And there's a wonderful quote by Philip Pullman, who wrote one of my favorite series of all time, his Dark Materials, where he talks about how all storytellers are thieves and we plunder what's shiny and we take it and we build a new nest with it. So I think to call it original is... A stretch in, in the sense that it is so deeply familiar and yet told with such a different skin and a different hue that it takes on this illusion of being totally new. And that's what makes it original.
0: Well, how would you think uh, how should young readers approach that with uh, thinking both of taking the book as it is, but thinking about, um, you know, these these questions um, about um, appropriation and things like that?
1: I mean, that's the hard thing, right? Because I will recommend that book to everybody because I loved it so much. I, you know, when I have kids, I can't wait to read that story with them. And then to eventually talk about like, you know, this is probably some of the things that they got wrong, but I can appreciate it for what it is. Um, and if I read a book like that, then I would also buy a book by an author of color who's telling a similar story. And so that way somebody can see the differences and they can also support the kind of background that should have had the chance to tell that story first.
0: Now this is um uh, there's a theme that kind of runs through the book as well about the value and burden of dharma and dharma in this case or at least the way Lloyd uses it is a sense of duty or obligation one has to have and so the king has this notion and for him it's um this notion of influence and occasionally it, it influences and misguides him in his choice and mm-hmm. action if you want to talk a little bit about how Lloyd at least sort of explores that idea of dharma at least as he understands it
1: yeah, sure. I actually thought he did a great job with that. Um, Dharma is one of those underpinnings of uh, Hinduism. And it's interesting because it is something that Aru, um, you know, my character struggles with a lot because, you know, there's this famous battle scene in the Mahabharata where the hero is staring down the battlefield and realizing that he has to kill the people that he's grown up with, the people that he loves, his family. And he just cannot reconcile that. And he has so much doubt. And the answer that God essentially gives him is to do your duty. And I wonder if, in a way, it's like almost the, it it reminds me a little bit of the Old Testament story of Job, in which, you know, you're wondering why all this stuff has happened. And the answer is simply that it's not your place to know. And that all you can do in life is to do your best to, to do the job that is given to you and to do it with honor. Um, and I really love that what Lloyd Alexander did with the iron ring was talk about how you cannot use duty as a crutch for feeling no consequence. It's, it's not a shield. It is a context in which you, in which you see your decision making. Do you know what I mean? Oh yes. Yes. And that's such a painful thing about growing up. You can't hide behind stuff anymore. Um, and it helps to have to be surrounded by smarter friends who can guide you in the right direction if you don't have the luck of a god whispering in your ear and telling you what to do next mm-hmm.
0: Now, along with the themes he explores, I mean, this is not a long book, but it's full of characters. He's constantly introducing new characters, and some of them really stand out. There's Miri, the 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 Gobier cowgirl, who's not exactly a damsel in distress. She's a very strong character. Hashat the king of the monkeys, who gets in all kinds of mischief. Uh, my personal favorite, the royal character, Adi Kavi, who's a little bit enigmatic and a f- philosophical man, who we first come across emerging from an anthill. Did you have a particular uh, favorite character one that appealed to you in particular?
1: Yeah, it was, it was Mira, honestly. Um, she just was so exciting to me as this character who was able, as a female character who was able to embrace what strength really means, at least to me these days, which is the the art of being yourself unabashedly. She could be strong, and that was great. And she could also wear beautiful clothes and feel feminine and not think as though that was somehow diminishing to her you know her version and her expression of strength didn't mean to make herself more masculine it was simply to be more herself now the the
0: other book uh that uh, we're going to talk about today actually has a uh the main character um is female it's tie the modern Fairytale" tale by holly black and that was first published in 2002 by simon and schuster uh, and this was this was a book that I had not read. I've read other books by Holly Black, but I was unfamiliar with this one. Uh, so it was very nice to uh, read it. Can you talk, uh, for those like myself who um, haven't read it, can you talk a little bit about what that book is about?
1: That book was so gritty. It was just like, I can't believe that you're allowed to write this way about fairyland. Um, and essentially, it is the story of a modern changeling, a girl who a human girl who um, doesn't quite fit in and finds out that she is actually a changeling, which means that she is actually a pixie and who is put into a human home and raised as a human girl, but that's not who she is. And her journey is about this complicated relationship with a fairy knight who I just fell in love with from the first page and when I was like 13, I tried wandering in the a rainy forest looking also for a wounded elf knight. but instead I just got bronchitis, but it was still a fun search. I didn't know. And, uh, it's just, it's basically that it's her exploration of the other world. And what happens when you enter fairyland, what does it change about your worldview and how does a place like that change you?
0: Now, both of these books, The Iron Ring and Tithe, uh, you know, draw upon uh, different mythologies. In this case, it's uh, fairy lore and things like that. The big difference is in this book, uh, like you were saying, it has a very contemporary uh, and urban setting. And and what's the value of taking these sort of old myths and sort of putting them into a very modern and familiar and uh, setting that doesn't quite jibe with these uh, or what we would expect uh, to find fairies anyway?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's the it's the same thing about why we even bother to tell fairy tales at all. It's not like there's very very few witches in the woods these days, or pr- like princes in need of brides and castles like that. And I think what's why we need them in these contemporary settings is it reminds us that these fairy tales and these mythologies are living things. They're adaptable. Um, Their values don't get lost by time, and they can be reworked to reflect new values. And I think that's what makes them like evergreen stories.
0: Now in like in the previous book, uh both of these books have a, a kind of a romance between two characters. Um and the other book it's between the, the king and Miri. And in this one it's between Kay and Robin, I believe it's pronounced. I'm not exactly sure. Uh the difference is I think in the Iron Ring um it's told through the perspective of the male character, uh where here it's told through the perspective of the female character and um i'm just wondering what difference do you think that be do you think that makes uh, telling the story here uh, through um through kay's eyes
1: i guess you know they go on such completely different journeys um and obviously completely different settings time periods etc but what i appreciated about kay's journey was it's very familiar for um any adolescent girl. It's the sense that you've, you're growing up, you, there's something maybe about you, or maybe there's something not, you don't know how to fit in. You wonder whether you have any ounce of the extraordinary, whether this is just going to be your life. And you're full of so much wanting. And it's that coming of age story of how you find footing in the world. And similarly, it's the story in the iron ring is like an inverse of that coming of age story. What if you already have everything? Now let's take it away. What What is it that you get in the end? Is it what you want or what you need? And usually the answer is you get what you need, but not necessarily what you wanted. And um, and that's another coming-of-age story, to adjust your expectations um and to adjust your value system.
0: I probably should say these two books probably are not for the same age group.
1: <laughs> oh, my God, no, 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 no. I mean... When I, I asked about children's books, maybe I should have not recommended Tithe, but it was formative for me. And I also read Flowers in the Attic Way Too Young. I think my parents thought it was a botany book. Um, You know, sometimes that's just the, the reckless art of growing up.
0: <laughs> well, I think these days there's a lot of kids who are supposed to be middle grade uh, readers who are... Very much reading YA books these days. So I don't think it's, it's entirely unusual for kids, um, of that age level to be looking at a book like this. Uh, and, and, and I have a lot of people chose a YA books So I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, now next question is going to be a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, I'm, I mentioned something that happened in the book. So if anybody, uh, hasn't read the book and is, uh, doesn't like spoilers, you might want to pause and go read the book and then pick it up later. Uh, so the, Kay basically goes through an enormous change, uh, a little more than halfway through the book, uh, she discovers, um, she's a fairy, basically, and actually has a physical, you know, both characters go through a change, but she actually goes through a physical, extreme physical, uh, change. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, that change, it's sort of thrilling and terrifying. And I'm wondering if it's, can see it all as sort of a, a metaphor for just, uh, a young person or a young woman sort of, um, going through their own changes in life and how that that uh using that uh this change into a fairy um uh might be a a way of uh dealing with those sort of issues,
1: yeah, absolutely, I mean you rip away the glamour of what you thought you were, and this reveals this alien under you lurking under your skin the whole time i mean that certainly resonates um and I was when I was a teenager, I had terrible cystic acne and a horrific haircut braces. And there are so many moments where you were just wondering, like, how long does this ugly duckling phase last? When will this all be over? Um, and when will I look in the mirror and see exactly who I want to see?
0: when you are, uh, I'm just curious, uh, when you, when you were reading this as a younger reader, um, you know, as adults, we sort of look at it and see as a metaphor, I don't know if those are a thought that occurred to you, or if it's just sort of a more subconscious thing, uh, when you read about this, uh, that, that you identify with the character, even if you can't quite, um, or is it, you know, something you that I can identify because, you know, I feel sort of like this as well.
1: I think that it was more of a subconscious thing. There was, Never a moment where I could articulate why I resonated with a certain character or why I felt so light um, when I first read a book with an Indian love interest, which was the Gemma Doyle trilogy by Libba Bray, who was brilliant, um, or what it meant to finally read a story like The Iron Ring that featured uh, mythology that I was familiar with, names that I had no trouble pronouncing. Um, there was something there was something I couldn't quite put my finger on. And honestly, it took years before I recognized that absence. Um, when I first started writing, for example, I didn't write any books uh, or characters that looked like me or had names like mine. And it took me a while to figure out that I was contributing to writing my own experiences out and erasing my own culture. and my own like who I was simply because I was so used to never seeing it that I assumed that the world would never want it
0: do you you think things are starting to improve when you look at uh books that are available? I know it's not quite what it should be. are things getting a a little bit better and we're finding more books um you know with uh both written by and uh featuring um uh characters of color characters from different uh backgrounds um and things like that is it is you seeing some sort of change in there uh or do we have a long way to go do you think?
1: No, I think it's definitely definitely changing. Um and it's absolutely for the best. The the stage that we're at right now is you know, it's obviously one of growing pains. The I never like to see an agent or a publisher say specifically that they are interested in a diverse story simply because it's written by somebody of that background because it gets into a strange and slippery slope of policing. You know, how much of that background do you have to have? What if you are of that ethnicity, but you were adopted by a different culture? Is it still yours? These are fraught questions and we should never just chase diversity for the sake of it. It's that's an ugly, stupid thing. And it leads to poor stories. What I think we should cultivate are just putting resources into the development also of writers of color and supporting the work that's already out there and putting our money where our mouth is and not just blindly retweeting something as, you know, keyboard social justice warriors, or that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's something that uh, annoys me, especially because I have a, a mixed race background. I'm Indian and Filipino, but I was largely raised in Indian culture. And one of the criticisms that I got a lot with Aru was saying that I'd gotten something wrong or that I was ignoring a different part of India's myth or commenting on the fact that I didn't grow up speaking the language. And there's a huge gap that's lost there because it's not taking into account, um, the experience of diaspora and the fact that I'm the daughter of first generation Americans and I come by those stories naturally, but I come by them secondhand. And it just raises all these really complicated questions about identity. And there's, no easy way to solve them in a 180 tweet, you know? That's
0: well, interesting because Aru uh, strikes me as somebody who is sort of learning as she goes along as well and is not quite familiar and is sort of figuring things out as she uh, um, sort of goes through her own story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Aru's experiences in relationship with her own religion um, and background is something that I saw with a lot of my friends who, Didn't have to be half Indian to feel that way. It was this, you know, we grew up and we would call each other coconuts, brown on the outside and white on the inside. You would go through the motions of religious holidays and not know the deeper significance. You would vaguely understand the names of certain characters, but you wouldn't know the stories behind them. And um, that's a sad thing to lose. And it's a, it's a nice thing to, to gain back.
0: Uh, just one more question about, um, going back to the, uh, Holly Black novel. And I'm just wondering, uh, just thinking about your own writing. Uh, what is it about the way that she constructs her own? You know, she, uh, takes this very old mythology of fairy stories and, like I said, uh, puts it into this modern setting, which is, reminds me very much of, um, your own book. Is there something about her book that you, uh, learned from or inspired from, uh, and sort of constructing your own story?
1: I think what Holly does exceptionally well and always has is that she is very well aware of a reader's expectation of something before they enter a story. And that's what makes her so effective when she flips it on its head. Um, people think that they know fairy tales, that they know what fairyland looks like something beautiful and delicate, whatever. And what she shows you is a very dramatic, um, dramatic place. It's beautiful, but it's also terrifying. And I think what makes her fairy tale so effective is that she never loses sight that these fairy beings are not human, that their moral compass is not human, that they don't react in a human way, even if they look like us.
0: Yes, I have to say, see some of the the fairies you encounter in the book are some of the scariest fairies I think I've ever read. Oh, yeah. They do some some fairly unpleasant things at
1: times (laughs) oh my gosh they're downright monstrous and yet they're so so beautiful and i I think that that's something that she it's a really great dynamic um and a grasp that she has like when you think of something like fairy fruit it's so beautiful it will kill you something that drives you to the point of obsession delirium it's a it's terrible tension of what it means to lose control and I think that's what's the really interesting thing about her newest trilogy, the Cruel Prince series, which is all, it's like a reverse changeling story, a human girl raised as fairy aristocracy and what it means to constantly be negotiating with what little power you have.
0: Now that I have not read, but after reading this book, I definitely have to look into that.
1: It's very good.
0: (laughs) I have to say, you know, thank you so much for uh, uh, picking these books giving give me a chance to reread and read a book that I haven't uh, read before. And uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to talk to me about these two books.
1: Absolutely. It was, it was a joy, truly.
0: You can find Roshni's website at roshni.chakshi.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled Together" is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.